Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 8, The Kingdom of Zapata. I'm Brandon Seal. By May of 1839, the residents of the original Rio Grande Vias, Laredo, Guerrero, Mier, Camargo, and Reynosa, had rid themselves entirely of any centralist government presence in their towns. Over the course of a few months and a few thousand miles in the saddle, local hero Antonio Zapata had immobilized centralist armies in Matamoros and Monterrey and Tampico, establishing de facto dominion over the countryside. Eventually, the centralist Mexican president himself felt compelled to lead troops out into the field to confront the Rio Granders, but Zapata ran him off too. In no small part, this is because Zapata commanded the hearts and souls of large swaths of the population. Sure, the centralist press dismissed him as a rabble-rouser for arming his mounted legion of Indians, mestizos, and mulatos, which is to say, men who looked like him. And they called him a traitor for starting to accept Texian volunteers into his ranks. But his men adored him. Even the Anglo-Texians drifting into his Federalist army were immediately drawn to Zapata and his leadership, which stood out to them far more than the color of his skin. Riding high on the success of his spring of 1839 campaign, Zapata was arguably the most powerful man in the region. He didn't seem to be a personally ambitious man, or at least not an overly ambitious one in a political sense. Yet he does seem to have realized his role at this moment as kingmaker and that this movement that he was a part of needed clear leadership. So in August of 1839, Antonio Zapata called a convention. He called civic leaders from throughout the old northeastern provinces. He called refugees from the Tampico Federalist Uprising the year before. He called frustrated ranchers from Nuevo León, from whose towns many of the founding families of the Rio Granvillas had come. He called the Coahuilans, always a cantankerous bunch and as Federalist to the core as the Tamaulipecans. And of course, he called on his Rio Grande Villas. The convention met on August 4th in Bialdama, Nuevo León, about 40 miles north of Monterey, near Canales and Zapata's field headquarters. Interestingly, it wasn't his old comrade Antonio Canales that Zapata supported for the leadership of their movement. Instead, it was Pablo Anaya, a much older and more senior army officer with national stature and a long history of supporting federalism, but with relatively loose ties to the Rio Grande Federalist movement. You don't really need to bother remembering Anaya's name because he won't last long, but I find it interesting that Canales, who was a politically ambitious man, was okay with this. Antonio Canales was, nominally at least, the commander of the Federalist Army and the instigator of this revolt taking it back to his raid on the armory in Camargo in November of 1838. So he had a legitimate claim to leadership of the movement. But maybe the 37-year-old Canales recognized the advantages of placing the 53-year-old Anaya at the head of the movement. And then again, maybe Canales went for it because Zapata told him to. Canales, of course, technically outranked Zapata. But Zapata was an intimidating guy. A contemporary of both men would later claim that Canales was, quote, overawed by Zapata, end quote. That same contemporary continued, quote, on one occasion, when Canales became alarmed and manifested a disposition to compromise with the government, 
Zapata told him that he, Canales, had pledged himself never to be bought up or to abandon the cause. And, said Zapata, if you dare to do either whilst I am living, I will as surely kill you. Death shall be certain, my vengeance shall be more speedy and terrible than that which you apprehend from the foe and drives you into treachery. You know very well that it is my spirit that holds our soldiers together, that it is to me that you yourself as well as the army looks for victory, and at the first signal of betrayal or desertion, the force now under your command shall be turned upon you as a foe, more hateful than the central despots." This may be an exaggerated literary version of the two men's relationship, but there's enough anecdotes like this to give it the ring of truth. Having selected the old Pablo Anaya as the leader of their movement, Zapata and Canales promptly sent him to Texas to try and raise more money and troops. The convention then broke, and the various representatives returned to their homes and began to arm themselves, in an apparent effort to replicate Zapata's strategy by fielding small, quick-strike forces throughout the Northeast that could harry the Centralists into exhaustion. The Coahuilans went home, but before they could even really get started, a new centralist commander caught up to them near a town called Santa Rita de Morelos. Bold and competent, this centralist commander, the 37-year-old General Mariano Arista, had played a critical role in quelling the Federalist uprising in Tampico a few months ago. He was of the same generation as Zapatan Canales and actually was widely suspected of harboring Federalist sympathies himself. Yet he had no sympathy for insurgents or for the Federalist revolts that he felt were destabilizing his new nation. And once he turned his attention to Coahuila, it didn't take him long to quash the new uprising there either. In just a matter of days after their August 4th conference had closed, Zapata and Canales were faced with the reality that they were confronting a new caliber of enemy. Canales quickly ordered the bulk of the Federalist forces under his command to pull back to the Rio Grande Villas for their own protection and that of the Villas themselves. Then, to further draw General Arista's attention away from the Rio Grande Villas, on August 6, 1839, Zapata made a feint toward Monterey. Leading a 260-man contingent, he raided the town of Salinas Victoria, a town that today has been absorbed by the larger Monterey metropolitan area, but which was still several miles north of Monterey back in the 1800s. In Salinas Victoria, Zapata confiscated 12,000 pesos from the customs house, armory, and church, an enormous sum that would go a long way towards supporting the revolt's expenses for months. A different kind of centralist general, would have been too afraid to march out against Zapata and would have let him return to the safety of the Rio Grande Villas with his new bounty. But when General Arista heard that Zapata was nearby in Salinas Victoria with only 260 men, he read the situation differently and realized that Canales and Zapata had divided their forces. He wasted no time in sending a pursuit party after Zapata and his raiders. Having grown accustomed to centralist complacency, Zapata had paused northeast of Salinas Victoria to rest his men. But in this uncharacteristic delay, Zapata gave the centralists the opportunity that they'd been looking for. On August 10th, General Arista's men caught up to Zapata and attacked them. Ten of Zapata's men were killed, and thirteen fell prisoner. The rest fled in disarray. One of the newly arrived Anglo-Texian recruits tells the story of how he lost his horse and was being pursued by a centralist lancer, 
when suddenly he saw Zapata reverse his own flight, bear down on the Lancer, and kill him before he could catch up to the Texian. The grateful Texian did not fail to tell his compatriots, or anyone who would listen for years after for that matter, about his rescue. Still, at the end of the day, this was a bad beat for Zapata and his unit. In addition to the 23 men he lost, Zapata also lost over 100 horses and large quantities of saddles and ammunition, not to mention the money. Zapata and his remaining men made it back to the Rio Grande as okay, but with Arista and his entire centralist army hot on their tail. Back on the Rio Grande, Zapata and Canales took counsel, but realized that they couldn't resist General Arista's oncoming centralist onslaught. And so, Zapata and Canales made the difficult decision to abandon the Rio Grande Bias and retreat to the north side of the river. All of this gave General Arista and the centralist government a much-needed public relations victory. In addition to being a competent battlefield general, Arista also had a knack for the PR game. His newspapers mocked the great Sombrero Mantecoso's flight, describing Zapata as, quote, fleeing precipitously in his shirt sleeves and without his sombrero in the most shameful cowardice, end quote. And the newspapers once again played up the horror of Zapata's chusma, or his mob of multicolored vaqueros, and the increasingly large number of Anglo-Texians serving in his ranks. Yet where else could Zapata and Canales turn at this point for aid except to the Republic of Texas? Desperate now, and with fewer and fewer domestic allies, in late August 1839, Antonio Canales himself undertook another diplomatic mission to Texas, once again alongside his chief of staff, the fiery José María Carvajal. And yet Texas President Mirabeau Lamar remained noncommittal. He just couldn't risk openly provoking the Mexican central government at the same time that he was trying to keep it from reinvading Texas. Recall that the centralist government had left a couple thousand troops along the Rio Grande after the Battle of San Jacinto precisely for this purpose. Of course, those were the same troops that Zapata and Canales were now keeping tied up with their revolt. And President Lamar realized that as long as the centralist government of Mexico was fighting new insurgents inside Mexico, they wouldn't bother fighting old insurgents outside of Mexico. So as a half-measure, President Lamar agreed to turn a blind eye toward the Rio Grande Federalist's continued recruitment of Texian volunteers. Canales and Carvajal were permitted to set up a recruiting station on the grounds of the new capital in Austin. The Rio Granders appealed to Texians' genuine ideological sympathy to their cause, and they also appealed to their pocketbooks. They promised all Texians who enlisted 2,200 acres of land and $25 a month, plus as much loot as they could take from the centralists. 226 Texians took the deal, about 180 of them Anglo and 50 or so Tejanos. There was one major elephant in the room, however, whenever Texians and Rio Grande Federalists got together. Technically, the Republic of Texas claimed all the land north of the Rio Grande. As most Texas history buffs know, however, the old Spanish province of Texas had always ended at the Nueces River. What's more, Canales, Zapata, and many others in the leadership of the Rio Grande Federalists actually owned substantial ranches on the north side of the Rio Grande. It was a sensitive issue that both sides just kind of artfully danced around. But the issue came to a head as the 226 new Texian recruits came marching south. 
because as soon as they crossed the Nueces River to the south bank, the Texian recruits unfurled a Texas flag and raised it over a small trading post there, to Antonio Canales' horror. Canales objected to this immediately and in no uncertain terms to President Lamar. He informed Lamar that he considered a Texian presence south of the Nueces, quote, a new aggression against the Republic, that I, because I am closer than you with an armed force, view it as my obligation to protest and even attack, end quote. And to show how serious he was about it, Canales added that, quote, this is the only cause for which I would cease to be a Federalist, because territorial integrity and national honor come before all else, end quote. And Canales wasn't just blustering. After sending this letter of protest to President Lamar, Canales immediately turned and told his centralist enemy, General Arista, about what was going on. Actually, even more, he invited General Arista to join him ASAP in a punitive expedition against the Texian transgressors that Canales had invited. But this inadvertently turned into a masterful stroke of psychological warfare on Canales' part. Because when General Arista received Canales' invitation, the centralist general naturally assumed that it was a trick that Canales was just trying to lure Arista across the Rio Grande into the no-man's land of the Wild Horse Desert, where the centralist general would be ultra-vulnerable to the plains tactics of Zapata and his vaqueros. And so General Arista paused on the south bank of the Rio Grande, and he remanded his orders to cross the river in pursuit of Canales and Zapata, which he was otherwise planning to do. Ironically, then, Canales' invitation to Arista to cross the Rio Grande is precisely what kept him from doing it, and what then gave Canales and Zapata time to integrate their forces with the newly arriving Texian volunteers, who had by then quietly lowered their Texas flag. Now in September of 1839, Antonio Zapata, Antonio Canales, his chief of staff, José María Carvajal, and others, felt emboldened by their new recruits and by Arista's refusal to pursue them north of the Rio Grande. At Zapata's urging, the Rio Grande Federalists once again took the initiative crossing over once again to the south side of the Rio Grande, near an old Carrizo Indian habitation, which the natives called, appropriately enough, Carrizo. As soon as they crossed, Zapata once again rode off with his mounted force, northwest, bound this time for Laredo, which he arrived at in time to lead the town folk there in their 16 de septiembre celebrations. One of the listeners wrote down the stirring speech that Zapata gave, quote, Soldiers of liberty, do not be seduced. The cause of the people, of the pueblo, is the most just of causes. You are the supporters of public liberties and national independence. Let us march, yes, let us march united on the path of honor, and your names will be memorable. Your children, your spouses and relatives will bless your memory and enshrine you with the true heroes of the fatherland. In defense of your liberty and that of your children, nothing will frighten us, my friends, not even our death. And that with your help and that of the people, the pueblo, my friends, Always trust that I will constantly labor for such a just cause until shedding the last drop of my blood. End quote. This last line, swearing to fight until shedding the last drop of my blood, this is a direct quote from the convention that Canales had convened on November 9, 1838, the previous year, where 38 representatives, which at that time didn't yet include Zapata, resolved to sustain their call for the establishment of representative government in the re-establishment of the Constitution of 1824 until, quote, shedding the last drop of their blood, end quote. But when Zapata said this, he meant it. 
something that wasn't always as convincing when it came from the mouths of some of the others in the Federalist leadership. But Zapata's sincerity always rang through, and new recruits flocked to his ranks as he marched out of Laredo again to the northwest. Zapata's goal seems to have been to open a new front against the Centralists. As his target, Zapata selected the old Presidio del Rio Grande, the spot from which all the old Spanish entradas had crossed the Rio Grande into Spanish Texas, the spot where the Alamo Mission, Mission Valero, had been originally founded, the spot where Santa Ana had crossed with his army three years prior. Now, in September of 1839, it was commanded by a man named Manuel Menchaca, a direct descendant of the men who had been defending the Presidio de Rio Grande for 150 years, as listeners of the very first episode of this podcast might remember. The Menchaca name in northern Coahuila meant what the Zapata name did in the Rio Grande Valley. So when Manuel Menchaca put out a call for aid to nearby towns, it was answered with the same vigor with which Laredoans had answered Zapata's call, including, I should note, volunteers from the small town of Santa Rita de Morelos, whose volunteers had also been critical, along with Menchaca himself, in routing the Coahuilan Federalist uprising the previous month. On September 24, 1839, at 5 p.m., Zapata attacked the old Presidio. His vaqueros circled the old fort like Comanches, trying to exhaust the defenders' ammunition and hoping to draw them out into the open field. But Menchaca wasn't just some reformed Spanish aristocrat fresh off the wagon from Mexico City. He was a veteran of the same kind of mounted frontier warfare as Zapata. And so he remained behind his walls and conserved his ammunition. The next day, Zapata tried a different Comanche tactic. Zapata's men stampeded the Presidio's horse herd, capturing most of them and daring Menchaca to come out in pursuit. Yet once again, Menchaca didn't budge. In frustration, the next day, Zapata ordered an all-out attack. But even against the crumbling hundred-year-old walls, it was useless. When it became clear that the Presidio would not fall and would not come out for battle, Zapata ordered a general withdrawal. While pulling back, however, Zapata's famous sombrero was shot off his head. With his typical bravado, Zapata wheeled his horse around and returned to the spot where it had fallen. He picked it up at a canter and kept on riding toward the old presidio, galloping now to within earshot of the defenders, to whom he shouted, quote, Well done to the people of Rio Grande and its commander, who well know how to sustain their cause with enthusiasm, end quote. This is going to make such an amazing miniseries one day, isn't it? Even though Zapata hadn't captured the Presidio, you could say that his raid up into Coahuila had accomplished its purpose. The horses he had captured were a welcome prize, but mainly it was Zapata's surprise appearance so far from his home base that reminded centralist General Arista that he couldn't venture too far from Monterey without leaving it exposed which once again meant that Zapata had bought the Rio Grande Federalist movement the breathing room that it needed to survive, and in this case, to recover from their defeats in early August. With this gift of time, Canales managed to pull together more than a thousand men into his reconstituted Federalist army, which was as many men as he had ever commanded before, and now it was populated by a colorful crew of Rio Grande vaqueros, Carrizo Indians, and Anglo-Texian volunteers and they were itching for a fight. On September 30th, 1839, Antonio Zapata, Antonio Canales, and José María Carvajal, among others, 
formed up their battle lines to launch an attack on Guerrero, Zapata's hometown. At this point in time, Guerrero was lightly held by only a small centralist force. But that force was led by one of the most accomplished battlefield commanders in northeastern Mexico. Actually, for a brief period, he had been the commander of the entire northeastern provinces. And indeed, actually, between 1812 and 1813, this commander had not lost a battle during the course of an entire year spent fighting Spanish royalists in Texas. Any guesses as to who I'm talking about? Speaking of plot twists worthy of a TV miniseries, the commander of the Centralist Forces defending Guerrero in September of 1839 was none other than José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara. Gutiérrez de Lara, the same man who had been the first president of an independent Texan state, the first governor of independent Tamaulipas, executioner of the reactionary first ruler of an independent Mexico, Agustín Iturbide. This same Gutiérrez de Lara was now fighting on the side of the establishment and against his old mentee and business partner, Antonio Zapata, whom he had just saved from financial ruin the year before by forgiving quite a sizable debt that Zapata owed to Gutiérrez de Lara. Which raises the question of why. Why had Gutiérrez de Lara changed so radically in his beliefs? Or maybe, should we be asking, why was Zapata fighting for something so different than what Gutiérrez de Lara had been fighting for all along? Luckily for us, Gutiérrez de Lara himself tried to tease out these ideas and tried to explain himself to Zapata in a poignant letter which he penned just as Zapata's forces started to encircle Guerrero. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to Season 2 of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. 
Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Vías del Norte, a history from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilan Coahuilteca Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.